Daniel chapter 11. We're coming back to our study in Daniel. We've been away from it for a few weeks. I thank the Lord for the time that we've had. Scott's preaching the baptism last week. Um, and the Lord's been very gracious to us, but we're coming back to Daniel now. Uh, and just a word of encouragement. I know it's, we, we miss Ryan and Bethany playing for us. Uh, they, they do a wonderful job, but it's good to hear your voices. You folks sing out, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, we continue to want to pray for Ryan and Bethany, and I know you all miss them uh, when they're not able to play. But just pray for them. But it's good to hear your voices. Sing out praise to the Lord. That's a good thing. We're thankful for it. Daniel chapter 11, verse, really focusing on verse 2 through verse 20 this morning. I'm cutting this into two parts because there's quite a bit of history to cover and some things that I want you to see in more detail. In our last few messages in Daniel, we looked at uh, kind of the overarching ideas of Daniel 10 through 12. We considered the, the kind of the context of those chapters and in some introduction into chapter 11 uh, specifically. And uh, now we're coming to some of this detail of the vision that Daniel uh, has been given. And I want to remind you by way of introduction, you need to recognize here that when you're reading these passages, what we're seeing is Daniel receiving this vision and this understanding from the Lord in 536 B.C. And what he is being given vision of is future happening. It's history to us, as you will note as we go through it this morning, but for Daniel at the time, it's future happening. And so he's been given, he has been given a layout of this future history that will unfold before the people of Israel. It's not in every single piece of detail, as we will know, but it's important to see God's Word is clear that God is the overarching sovereign of all of time, space, and matter. And we dealt with that some weeks ago. And as we move into this this morning, I want to just make you aware, I won't always say who I'm quoting and things of that nature, but... I'm indebted to several historians and pastor theologians, uh, just to name a few, especially Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. If you want to read some of his work, you can do so. He's got a good set of sermons on Daniel, uh, also a great book on Revelation. Dr. Sam Waldron, uh, Dr. Thomas Scott, uh, Dr. D.R. Davis, and Dr. Ian DeGuid. All of these men have been very helpful among some other historians as these things have been pieced together uh, over the last uh, months, I don't know, months and months. So I've been thinking about this for a while and how to put this together. Most people don't preach Daniel 11 uh, because uh, it's not something that people would think about preaching. Um, but I think it's necessary for us to preach it, uh, to have it looked at in the context in a way that we see not only the detail of what is being given, but there'd be preaching application to our souls and how we are to view it. And so I want to give you the, the idea of this full passage from one author as he says, This world is full of wars and fightings which come from men's lusts. All changes and revolutions of states and kingdoms and every event are plainly and perfectly foreseen by God. No word of God shall fall to the ground, but what he has designed, what he has declared, shall infallibly come to pass. And this is what we see happening here in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel is given a vision in 536 B.C. He's given a vision of what is about to unfold in world history. Now, it's succinct in some of its places, but think about this for a minute. We try to, as historians that work today, we try to look at history and put it, piece it together from the information we can get from the past. God is giving Daniel the overarching context of world history, the purpose of it, and the theme of it before it happens. Now, historians will tell you ancient history is hard to piece together. And what one of us knows the future enough to be able to summarize it in a few verses? You know a teacher is really good at what they do and they really understand what they're telling you when they can take some great huge subject and condense it in a way that people can grab hold of it and they condense it into a way that 
it's in a few succinct paragraphs or verses of that nature. And only God can take future history and condense it into a few verses. And that's what we see happen in Daniel. And we unfold it this way in two main points. Number one, two strong kingdoms summarized in three succinct verses. Now you'll be happy to know in the first point there's only two subpoints. You'll be a little concerned because the second main point has six. But don't worry, I'll get us through it. Number one, two strong kingdoms summarized in three succinct verses. From Daniel 11, 2, all the way to verse 4 or through verse 4, you're seeing the summary of these strong kingdoms. Firstly, in verse 2, the Persian Empire rises and falls. This is speaking specifically about the Persian Empire, which is the context of which Daniel is living at the time. He's seen the Babylonian Empire fall. That was prophesied by God, and it has happened. And now he's seeing the entrance and the context of the Persian Empire. That Persian Empire is so wide and so great, it's so immense, that Daniel is now seeing that that empire will rise and fall. Now you have to think in the moment, that, that's a pretty big deal. The, the empire in and of itself and the landmass that it has been able to assume He's, God is telling Daniel, there is coming a time that no matter how powerful you think this empire is, I will cause it to fall. So he's predicting in prophecy that that will happen. This refers to the reign of Cyrus, to Xerxes I, and to the eventual fall of the whole of the Persian Empire. This verse is approximately 200 years of history, from 530 B.C. to 331 B.C., Verses 3 and 4. This is Alexander the Great, his rise and fall. Alexander the Great rises and falls. Verse 3. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now, you need to see the unfolding of this because right after the Persian Empire comes Alexander the Great. And the reason that the Persian Empire falls is because in 334... Alexander the Great begins his rise. And within 331, by 331 B.C., Alexander has conquered all of Persia and he's gone all the way to the Indus River Valley. He's almost touching India. He's up into the Caucasus Mountains. The, the amazing power of the armies of Alexander to march as far east as they did. And Scripture summarizes this in two verses. Now, it's interesting to note, just for a matter of fact, I mean, think about it. Um, the world looks at Alexander the Great. I think I looked it up on uh, Goodreads or something like that. Goodreads notes 143 different biographies written on Alexander the Great. And God sums him up in two verses. <laughs> Alexander thought he was great. And God said, well, yeah, you did a little something. But you don't understand how great I am. I can sum you up in two verses. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Not only does it sum up his rule and reign in its context, but it sums up the fall itself. Verse 4 uh, speaks of the fall. But as soon as he is risen, his kingdom will be broken up and parsed out toward the four points. Now, this was already mentioned in Daniel 8.8. This is already a part of prophecy. Now, remember, what you're seeing unfold here is that Daniel has been struggling with the visions that he's already been given. He's had real difficulty searching through all of these visions and understanding. And he's, he's even been terrified at points. And in other places, I've, I've got to know more. I've got to understand more. And he's approaching God graciously and faithfully. And God is mercifully giving him more information about previous visions. And so what we're seeing unfold in Daniel 11 in this vision is more information about things that he's already spoken to Daniel about. And he's giving him, giving him all of that in proper context. So he sums up not only the rise of Alexander, but he sums up his fall and even how the kingdoms will be parceled out. There will be four kingdoms parceled out. 
One writer says, immediately after his death, speaking of Alexander, the empire split into five, but almost straight after that, it settled down into four distinct quarters. Macedonia, which is above modern-day Greece, was under Cassander. Thrace and Asia Minor, that's just across from Macedonia. Uh, this is uh, Lysimachus. Syria was under Seleucus, and we'll talk more about Seleucus in just a moment. And Egypt is under uh, Ptolemy or Ptolemy, however some people say it differently. Um, and so this writer goes on and says, it says, instead of the great horn, there were four notable ones. Remember the great horn was mentioned earlier in our earlier visions, and he's saying now we're getting to these four notable ones, and this is noted here. These four kingdoms come out of the rule of Alexander the Great, and this is being prophesied before it happened. 536 B.C., Daniel's receiving a vision of what's going to happen in 323 B.C. at the fall of Alexander the Great. By 322 to 321 B.C., all of this is worked out in history, and Daniel's being told about this in a succinct measure some 200 years earlier. So as these kingdoms are worked out and summed up, we have to say, well, gosh, why didn't God give more information about such a great individual like Alexander the Great? Because it didn't serve his purpose at the time. He summed him up because he was moving on to bigger things. And we're going to see some of those bigger things unfold, especially when we get into chapter 12. So you have to keep the connections and the ideas that are here. Well, main point number two. Two reigning families summarized in three succinct paragraphs. We have two verses earlier, but now, or two or three verses earlier, and now we have three succinct paragraphs. Two reigning families summarized in three succinct paragraphs. Letter A. Two of Alexander's remaining generals began a historic feud. As we move into verse 5, we will see the unfolding of a historic feud between two of those generals that came out of the time of Alexander. Remember, this is being prophesied ahead of time. You got to keep that in your mind. This is being prophesied ahead of time. And as this is being revealed, what we're seeing is we're seeing the unfolding of what will happen over 150 years. This feud will continue between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemy Empire. These two generals and their family lines will feud with one another, the Seleucids from the north and the Ptolemies in the south of Egypt. Now, why is that important? Who's in between? Jerusalem. Israel's in between. So what you see is, is that Alexander's not so important because his impact on Jerusalem and what God was trying to deal with, that wasn't the major point. What's going to happen to the people of Israel? What's the purpose of all that? The north kingdom of the Seleucids, the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies, these two kingdoms war with each other and they come through the land of Israel warring with each other all the time. Constant conflict. And he's saying to Daniel, I'm going to keep my people through all of this conflict back and forth over and over and over again. One writer says, the king of the south is Ptolemy I. That's speaking of verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong. That's Ptolemy I who ruled from 323 to 285 B.C. One of his best generals, now think about this, the early writer said first what happened was five, five distinct quarters for just a little while, but then all of a sudden there was four, was because Ptolemy had a general named Seleucus. Ptolemy of the south in Egypt had a general named Seleucus. And Seleucus started to gain some power of his own, and he said, you know what, I'm going to go up here, and I'm going to take over the north kingdom, and he did it. And when he did it, he began to rule over what was uh, a select portion of the Persia, Persian Empire. And it's a huge landmass. It goes from the Mediterranean, the north 
uh, East Mediterranean all the way over toward India. Huge landmass. The Ptolemies, they have this small area compared in Egypt. And so these two warring factions smashing against one another continue to happen, and it starts with Ptolemy I and Seleucus I. Well, letter B. The Scripture tells us there's an attempted marital alliance. It stirs strife with no peace. And look at verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance. Now, notice it was after some years. So we're not talking about the reign of the, the Ptolemy I and Seleucus I anymore. We're now moving into Ptolemy II. All right? And it says, After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Seems a little cryptic. But because we're on the back end of it, guess what? It's not that cryptic. Ptolemy II tried to gain an alliance with King Antiochus II of the Seleucus Empire. He was the grandson of Seleucus I. And he tried to gain... Ptolemy II, this alliance by marrying off his daughter named Bernice. But there was a problem. Antiochus II was already married. That's a little bit of an issue, right? So what does Antiochus do? Because he's trying to work two kings together, he takes his wife, uh, Laodicea, and he puts her away so that he can marry Bernice. Well, Ptolemy II dies. And when Ptolemy II dies, Antiochus II says, You know what? Your dad's dead, Bernice. So I'm going to put you aside and go back to Laodicea. My first wife. Well, when he went back to Laodicea, guess what? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Laodicea poisoned Antiochus II. Then she in turn had Bernice and Bernice's son killed. See how verse 6 plays out? It's quite interesting when you think about it because what we're seeing is the bloodletting of all these families. As one author says, but all this bloodletting was not smart because Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, who attacked the north, captured and executed Laodicea and enjoyed a resounding victory over the Seleucid land. Well, this is exactly fulfilling what would happen in verse 6 and verse 7. When you see the context of all this, it continues to unfold. And once again, Daniel is seeing this 250 years ahead of time, 300 years ahead of time. And then in history, this unfolds. Now you can begin to see why modern scholars especially I want to say that Daniel did not actually write the book of Daniel. It actually was written lay, way later in 150 or so B.C. Because they can't believe that Daniel had all this information right 200 to 400 years beforehand. Well... We see as verse 7 rolls on, it says, But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army, and enter the forces of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. That's Bernice's brother. All right? And then in verse 8, Also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain and attacking, from attacking the king of the north for some years. Now, Anytime you see these phrases, after some years, for some years, those are key words. You're getting transition in those points. Okay? And so you're recognizing what is going to happen here is that there's going to be some kind of in-between. Well, this gives us an identification of what's going to unfold because uh, Ptolemy uh, III has already attacked the north and he's captured and executed Laodicea. And so what's going to happen at this point? 
Well, verse 9 says, Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. Well, Seleucus II, he attempted to conquer Egypt, but failed in 242 B.C. Wow. History tells us this is exactly what happened. Letter C. Seleucus II's son, or sons, plural, continue the feud, which includes Antiochus the Great or Antiochus III. Now this begins to slow down at this point, and Antiochus III becomes a main figure. And we'll devote a bulk of our time on Antiochus III against the Ptolemy rulers of Egypt because that's what the text does. So in verse 10... His sons will mobilize and assemble. That's the sons of Seleucus. There's the broad idea. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, and he may gain again wage war up to his very fortress. So you see the sons... After some years, and then it focuses on this individual who will do it, and that's Antiochus III. He becomes this great military leader, and that's why he's known as Antiochus the Great. Now, when this takes place in verse 11, it says, The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. Well, this is a mentioning here of this continuing war between the Seleucids and in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. And specifically, this is about Antiochus III. He waged war against Ptolemy IV. Now, somehow he failed in this war. Now, you say, well, What do you mean somehow he failed? Well, Ptolemy IV was an absolute horrible person. He was known for all kinds of debauchery. Um, According to one writer, he was a a cruel debauchee who began his reign by murdering his mother. Ptolemy IV now, of Egypt, murdered his mother, his wife, his sister, and his brother. Would you like to have him as your ruler? Not only that, he chose to have wicked relationships with males and females and died due to disease. This guy was about one of the most inept leaders you can imagine. And somehow Antiochus the Great goes against him and loses a war to him. And Historians are just amazed that that happened. When you read about this in history books, they just can't fathom how in the world Antiochus III could lose to this inept person, Ptolemy IV. They say it over and over again. And every reason they list is always a human reason. But God's Word is telling us that God had a purpose for Antiochus to lose that battle. Because Antiochus, his wars would need to go further for the furtherance of the coming of the kingdom. When Antiochus loses this war to Ptolemy IV, he had greater numbers and he lost 17,000 men to Egypt's 2,200. Everybody says, what? He had more men. He had more power. He was a greater military leader. This guy was inept. How in the world, with more men, more power, more things at your disposal, and you're a great military leader, how did you lose? Well, it's a part of God's providence. God was working something else out. During the midst of this, verse 14 indicates to us Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they will fall down. Several historians note this. 
and several theologians as well, one of them I think sums it up well when he says, the phrase your own people, i.e. Daniel's people, the Jews, in verse 14, you'll see that, the violent ones among your people, refers to a brief civil war fought among Jews in Jerusalem about 199 B.C. between those who favored the Seleucids or the Seleucids and those who favored the Ptolemies. So we know in history, 199 B.C., there was an uprising in Jerusalem among the Jews as to who they liked more, the Ptolemy Empire or the Seleucid Empire. And this uprising took place in the context of what was going on between Antiochus III, excuse me, uh, against Antiochus III of the Great and the Ptolemies. Verse 14 tells us that 300 years in advance. There it is. History tells us this is what happened. So this continuing battle moves along. And letter D, Antiochus finally prevails over the Ptolemies. That's verses 15 and 16. Antiochus finally prevails over the Ptolemies. And of course, that's to a certain degree. Uh, there, there's ongoing battle that takes place. We have to recognize that the Scripture is giving us these identifications to see what is happening and God working them out in time. Verse 15 says, The king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Well, we know from history that Ptolemy IV died in 203 B.C. when his son Ptolemy V is only five years old. Now, Antiochus III is still living. What do you think happens when one ruler hears that another feuding ruler dies and the only son that he has to come to the throne is four or five years old? What do you think Antiochus the Great is going to think? Aha! Here's my chance. I'm going to go to war against a five-year-old. Right? So the scripture is giving us an indication that Antiochus wages war and this time he wins. He wins. We saw some of this in a general sense in verse 13, but now 15 provides some more information. Antiochus mustered a massive army according to one writer, attacked Phoenician holdings in Phoenicia and Palestine, eventually driving Egyptian forces into Sidon, were under siege. Sidon was surrendered in 198 B.C. We know for a fact, out of history, pieced together, Antiochus III finally took the Ptolemy Empire and he waged war and he prevailed and he won. But also what happened that's very important and why this is focused on is because at this time, previously, Jerusalem had been under the rule and the reign of the Ptolemies. But when Antiochus III of the Seleucids, when he prevails, then Jerusalem comes under the reign of the Seleucid Empire. You say, now, well, why is that important? Well... We'll see next week the importance of that very specifically in the figure of Antiochus of Epiphanes because he's going to be a person who comes in and he rules and reigns over Jerusalem for a short period of time but in a very demonstrative and demeaning way. But you say, well, why does that matter? Why does it matter here in Daniel? Do you realize that God is giving you the evidence that he was already setting up Antiochus of Epiphanes to come and do what he would do. And for that to happen, Antiochus III had to beat out Ptolemies of the south. When we look at this history, we just look at wars between men. But the scripture's telling us we need to see it differently. It's something even greater. Well, letter E. 
Well, let me say this. Note this in verse 16. You see where it says, He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in His hand. That's a reference to Jerusalem, uh, beautiful land. And so we're noting there that the text is telling that the Seleucids will reign over Jerusalem for a time. And that's exactly what did happen. And then verse 17. He will set His face to come with power of His whole kingdom, bringing with Him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Letter E, another attempted marital alliance falls apart. Two different kings have tried to bring about a marital alliance. To bring these two kingdoms in some way together so that they, they could be a force to reckon with because you have to remember the Greek empire still has some power at this time, but the Romans are the ones, they are roaring. And everybody's trying to figure out how to deal with the Romans. And right now the Romans aren't important in this scheme and this part of what God is telling, but you can see why they're trying to make this marital alliance between Egypt in the south and the Seleucid Empire, the old Persian Empire of the north, and they're trying to bring all of those people and lands together so that they can withstand the Romans or even maybe attack them and defeat them. Well, after Antiochus had sieged good portions of land, he wants to keep it and broker a deal for peace and a future probability at the Seleucid throne. So he offered his daughter, Cleopatra, in marriage to Ptolemy V. Now, part one worked out and they were married, but all the other parts and ideas were foiled. Cleopatra sided with Ptolemy, her new husband, Ptolemy V, according to one writer, and the bond did not serve Antiochus III's purposes. I just kind of noted this. This is just a little bit extra for you today. Government peace attempts rarely end well. Why do you think that is? Because it's men trying to work out the differences between men in the context of humanism. They're always thinking about themselves. So we see the unfolding of this marital alliance here in verse 17. It doesn't work out. And because it doesn't work out and... He doesn't get what he wants with his daughter Cleopatra married to Ptolemy V. Antiochus III says, you know what? i got to find something else to conquer. That makes sense, right? Let's just go on to other wars. So the scripture says in verse uh, 18, Then he, Antiochus III, will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him, Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. Letter F. Antiochus III meets Roman rule and reign. Antiochus III meets Roman rule and reign. After this failed marital alliance, Antiochus focused on some of the Mediterranean islands, according to several authors, and he gained some of them but he was brought to a halt by Rome. And we know this in history. Matter of fact, Rome warned him, do not invade Greece. Don't go to the west. You can have some of these little islands, but don't get on the mainland and do not come into Greece. Antiochus said, ah, who are you to tell me what to do? So Rome came after him. He was defeated at Thermopylae. And finally at Magnesia in 190 B.C. The loss was very great because once again he outnumbered the Romans almost two to one. 70,000 to 30,000 and he still lost. Verse 19, so he will turn his face. He's been defeated Antiochus III, he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Several writers note Antiochus III 
was in trouble because after he was defeated by Rome, he still owed Rome tribute. You have to recognize the Roman Empire wanted you to pay tribute if you were one of their lands that they had taken or if you were somebody they had defeated who tried to attack them. So Rome was not sorry for the thrashing and demanded tribute from Antiochus even though he had spent his money on trying to raid Egypt and Greece. One writer says Antiochus was killed in battle in a desert wilderness in 187 trying to loot smaller kingdoms to pay his tribute to Rome. What does the scripture say? He will stumble and fall and be found no more. They know very little of exactly where he died. They know very little of what this place was. And the scripture is telling Daniel, hundreds of years before, Antiochus III will be done and over with. Letter G. Antiochus' Roman defeat opened up the door for tyranny against the Jews. Verse 20. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. We have to see here that there was one who came into power after Antiochus III died, and it was one of his sons, Seleucid IV. And when he ascended to the throne, guess what? You think Rome said, sorry that your dad died. We'll cancel all your debts. They said, nope. No, you still owe us. So what does Seleucid do? He dispatched his treasure, his treasurer to plunder the temple at Jerusalem. You know what? They got all these riches at the temple in Jerusalem. Since we own that place now, let's go attack them, get what we need to pay off Rome. One writer notes, but Seleucid's treasurer, it seems, was actually working for Seleucid the fourth's brother. And his name is Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. It looks like Antiochus Epiphanes had his own brother poisoned by the hand of this treasurer. And in any case, as the scripture notes in verse 20, there was a very short reign for Seleucid the Fourth. It was inconsequential compared to his brother who will come after him, and that's the focus of verse 21 and onward. What will unfold next week is something important for us to recognize how this affects the people of God and what God will be doing. But what do we do with this history that we've seen this morning? Well, there's three thoughts. Number one, the world sees history while God works all-knowingly. The world sees history while God works all-knowingly. If you're concerned about the future right now, of where, what's happening in the world, I, I am if I pay attention to the news and look at things. Sometimes I try to just not pay attention to the news at all. Um, but when I look at things, I'm concerned about the future. I mean, even the time I spent in Cuba, you come to realize how much of a footing that a, a nation like China already has on this small island of Cuba, and it's not really that small, but comparatively speaking, the United States, it's small. China already has a serious foothold there. That's a, that's a serious enemy to our nation. Well, what are we going to do? Well, honestly, it doesn't look like our government right now is that concerned about China. I have no evidence that the full understanding of the federal government realizes that China is a threat to our national security. I don't have any evidence of that. Maybe some of you do and you're comforted. I don't know, but I'm not. So what do I do? Buy a nuclear bomb in a plane and take on China myself? We know that's absurd. The first thing I have to do is trust that if the Lord is the Lord who put together all of history. He did so all-knowingly. What he gave to Daniel was future tense. 
he unfolded for Daniel everything that would happen, saying, I'm in charge of these things. We have to see that this text, although if you're not a history person, I can see some of your eyes glazing over, and I'm thankful you've hung with me as long as you have. Don't you see that this text radiates the omniscience of God? God knows all things because he's planned all things. Now, that doesn't relegate that I have no responsibility for my future actions. It just relegates the first place I have to start is trusting in God, the God who is the God of all providence. He knows all things. He has a purpose for everything. Even if China does build a military base in Cuba, he has a purpose for that. I'm not saying it's a positive thing. I'm just saying we need to recognize the Lord is the Lord of that. President Xi is not thwarting God's will. Not one thing China will do will be outside of God's will. Not one thing. And anybody else for that matter, whatever dictator it is, whatever country it is, whatever government says, God's in control of that. God knows all things. And even here, he sent an angel to reveal future events to Daniel. Will he not have a purpose for all other future events, even for those that are upcoming? Sometimes God reveals these events in short form, just like he did here, but he did so with great accuracy, so much so that historians can't believe that Daniel knew this hundreds of years before it happened. That's because they don't want to believe in a God who knows all things because they're afraid of him. They're afraid that he might actually hold them accountable for who they are and their actions. And nobody wants God to hold them accountable because they want to say, I'm doing everything right. Our own human self-righteousness wants us to think God is not in control because we don't want to be accountable to him. With two thoughts under this, number one, or this number one heading, Humanists think knowledge is gathered, learned, and humanly deciphered. Humanists think knowledge is gathered, learned, and humanly deciphered. Christians think knowledge is a gift from the one and only omniscient God. Christians think knowledge is a gift from the one and only omniscient God. Now this knowledge that God gives us, because he created our minds, he created our abilities to study, This knowledge is still to be gathered and learned, but is only deciphered according to God's word as the lens to understand God, man, and even to brighten the light of nature. The scripture doesn't tell us how to make spaghetti, but it tells us that meat is good. Right? So from the light of nature, if meat is good and I have dominion over it, I can properly slaughter it. Cut it up. Well, once I've cut it up, Beth does all the rest. She cooks it however which way that she chooses to cook it, and I eat it. And I'm thankful for it. Although the Scripture did not dictate exactly how we ought to do that, the Scripture brightens our light of nature. But here what we've seen is even more than the light of nature. God has told us exactly how history played out, and he did so before it happened. Christians look at knowledge differently. It's a gift from the omniscient God. God reveals events with accuracy because of his sovereign planning of all things. It's not just that God knows all things. God has sovereignly planned all things. Not one thing is outside of him or his sovereign plan. Observation number two. The world sees monarchy, mystery, and murder while God reveals his purpose. Now, we'll unfold this more even next week. I'll use this observation as we go along, but just to introduce it to you this morning. The world sees monarchy, mystery, and murder while God reveals his purpose. Humanists will attribute all of these kingdoms, speaking of the kingdoms in the text here, to the ebb and and flow of power among men and women. They look at that and say, this is... People warring against each other in factions. This is human stuff. Well, to some degree it is. But Christians will attribute all change, all change, including kingdom change, to the immutable God. 
God's doing this. These kingdoms warring is not changing God. God is immutable. Nothing changes Him. He's the one affecting them because He has a purpose. Not one of those leaders came into being and rose or fell apart from the very purpose of God. Thirdly, the world sees rising and falling powers. The world sees rising and falling powers while God raises, reduces, and removes rulers. The world looks at it and goes, oh, they're just coming to be and coming out. No, what's actually happening is God is raising and reducing and removing rulers. This is the work of God. And his stamp is on it right here in this text. If you ever thought for one second that God was not in control of every single kingdom and nation, study Daniel 11. Really, study chapter 7 all the way to the end. Now, I would say to you when you study it, you need to read some of the right people. There's people out there that get some idea that somehow China is mentioned in Daniel 11. China is not anywhere in Daniel 11. And no, no, none of that. We're looking at past history only at this point in the text. Now, when we get to verse 36, we'll have a different discussion, but we're not there yet. Humanists think they are the catalyst for change. I was talking to one of our men just a minute ago. We actually think what started out as global warming and now has become climate change, we actually think we're in charge. And we're the catalyst to save the world from climate change. Well, there's a couple of problems. Well, there's actually a bunch of them. One is, first of all, Think about it for a moment. This is all about the United States and some of, some of the European countries having to get their act together. While hordes of other nations, including China, do absolutely nothing. You think China cares? You think they're going to listen to our climate change? You think they're listening to that little teenage girl... Thornburg, whatever her name is, not to be, I'm not being mean to her. She, she's not even 20, is she? She's like 18 or something, 19. Hey, come on. She knows how to save the world? You've got to be kidding me. She barely knows how to drive a car. And by the way, she doesn't want one, right? You think all these nations and governments are going to actually get together and solve climate change? Even if it's a real thing. Did all these nations in the text, did they solve all their problems? Marriage was the solution, right? They were going to bring peace. How did it work out? Oh, a bunch of family members poisoned and killed and murdered and... Worked out great, didn't it? I'm not disparaging our president regime, but our poor president right now, do you think he could actually go talk and have a sensible conversation with President Xi about climate change? It's sad. His family ought to be ashamed and embarrassed for what they've done. And what do we have to say to that? Are we worried about humanism? A catalyst for change being me? The only thing I can do now is ask the dear Lord God of heaven and earth, please help us. But don't just help this nation. They all need to be helped. And how are they helped? By the gospel. And that's what this passage is about. It's about the furthering of the gospel. We'll go on from there. Lastly, Christians will trust in the supreme and sovereign providence of God. That means Christians don't trust in themselves to be the human catalyst for all change. doesn't mean Christians don't hold to personal responsibility from the Scripture. We do. But we derive our idea of personal responsibility from the Scripture and the supremacy of God's Word because God Himself in being is supreme. If I'm doing those things which God teaches and told me to do, then I'm in favor with God. Even... 
Even if somebody doesn't like the fact that I shot a deer, cleaned it, and had my family eat it. Do y'all know that deer are a problem for climate change? They're browsers. They eat everything. If we let them take over the United States, you know what will happen? They'll eat most of the leaves on the trees and we'll have a lot of what? Carbon dioxide. And the ozone layer will continue to deplete. But we've loved the deer. They don't understand the idea of dominion because they don't want to bow to the supreme God of heaven and earth, the creator of all the heavens and the earth. They don't want to bow to him. And this text in Daniel is telling us, all rulers will bow the knee because God himself will bring them into being when they had none. He will bring them to their rise and he will bring them to their fall. So who is our rock and our refuge and our fortress? Psalm 91, the God who created the heavens and the earth. We go before him first and foremost. We live toward him first and foremost. We live to please him through the glory of his son Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. I say to you and I who are believers in the room today, Let's seek the very Word of God and follow the commandments of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And if anybody wants to call us account to that, fine, fair enough, they can do so. But if they do it wrongly, they're not my judge. The God of heaven and earth will judge them if they judge me. And I'll leave them in His hands. Because whatever He will do to them, if they will not bow the knee and repent, will be far worse than anything I could do. May we see these texts, although a little bit convoluted in our minds, see the plainness of the sovereignty of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Praise you for your word and your truth alone. Praise you that you Give this truth to us that we may see who you are. And really, your word is given to your people because your people long to understand it. Unbelievers hate your word and they don't want to see it rightly. But Lord, we come to this time of your word to say we trust and believe in you. And we want to live according to your truth. Please, Lord, will you give us minds and hearts to trust in you? As we come to the time of the table, will you remind us of what it means to trust in you as our Lord and Savior? That your son, the Lord Jesus, died for sinners like us? Remind us of these great truths to the glory of Christ. We say and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.